everybody. My name is Jason Stellan. Welcome to the Lifetime Training Podcast. I am extremely excited to bring you Mr. Paul Taylor. Paul is an ex-military neuroscientist, exercise physiologist, nutritionist, uh, and he's getting his PhD in applied psychology and his emphasis is on resilience and cognitive fitness. It is going to be an awesome episode. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason. Top of the morning to you from where I'm from. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I I've, was very fortunate to come and see you speak, you know, many years ago now. I can't believe how mm. long ago it was. And it was really life-changing. And one of the the true pioneers of of bringing this whole mental side into the fitness realm and, and you really, you yep. were on the first to do it. So uh, I can't wait to get into this. You know, I'd love to just jump right in. And, you know, I know that you've got the, the mind body brain performance Institute. Um, mm-hmm. And within that is really where you're launching this whole concept of, you know, again, cognitive fitness and resilience. Can you tell the audience about, you know, what you're doing there? Yeah, sure. So, so look, I've, I've worked since I left the military, I, I, I became a bit of a geek um, um, you know, exploring all of the um, uh, the research in those different areas. Um, but maybe 10, 12 years ago, I started doing um, corporate presentations. And, and so now I, that's kind of my, my full-time gig. As you know, I used to own a, a company that certified personal trainers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I stopped doing that a while ago and, and got more and more into the, the, the corporate space. Um, but then I met a guy, I, I presented at... Um, the happiness conference in Australia. Uh, it's a big, big conference, about 1500 people. And there was a guy afterwards who, who came up to chat to me and said, look, I really like what you're doing. I'd love to chat. And, and it turns out he's the principal scientist for the Australian defense science technology group. Wow. Um, and a really sharp cookie. And, and he is a pioneer in the area of cognitive fitness. Uh, and, and he said, look, I'd, I'd, I'd like to explore some collaboration. Anyway, long story short, I'm now doing my PhD in this area. And he, he is one of my, my supervisors. But cognitive fitness really is like prevention for resilience, right? So if you think exercise is prevention for chronic disease, that cognitive fitness is it, it's prevention, but it's much more, right? So if we think about resilience, it is generally defined as um, being able to go through um, stressful events or trauma and either not be affected by it in, in, in terms of psychopathology and PTSD, anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. either not having that or being damaged, but then recovering. Right, so so they're the generally the two interchangeable definitions of resilience, but cognitive fitness is actually taking a different lens and saying, well, w- particularly for the military, right? So we know we have all of these um, um, soldiers who we've trained, invested a lot of money in. They're going to go to really challenging, stressful environments for long periods of time, um, and and rather than waiting until they become damaged and try to fix them, can we do something um, upfront? So enhancing their ability to perform under pressure, that's really what cognitive fitness is all about. And, 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 and Eugene, my, my PhD supervisor, he, he has set, a, set up this framework of, of what we call target constructs. So identified areas of brain function that, you can, that are trainable. 
that we can actually intervene and train and so to enhance people's ability to perform under pressure, right? And it's going to have applications for the military world, um, but also for the world of athletes and um, for for um, um, for all sort of sport, but but also for business. So anybody who needs to perform under pressure, yeah. cognitive fitness really applies, right? Got it. And, you know, I was reading some things about it and you, you said a lot of this, you know, originally started from when you went through some pretty extensive military training yep. and the different things that they had to, you know, they put, they basically put you through that. Then when you came out of it, you said you came out and things just didn't bother you. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? And yeah, know, sure. How that that, that, yeah. That's probably where it all started for, for, mm-hmm. for me. So it was back in, I think it was 1998. I went through um, combat survival and resistance to interrogation training, uh, which was basically <laughs> ten days of pretty hardcore yeah. stuff. Yeah, and back then it was back then it was really yeah. hardcore. There was, yeah. there was there was not yeah. a lot a little of different. Yeah. <laughs> so so basically, in those ten days, um, the the only food they gave us was a chicken between four people, and it was alive when we got it. Um, it wow. was in, in winter in the UK. We had no sleeping bags. Um, so we um, the, basically, you, you slept. They showed you how to make a tactical basher, which is, is basically you kick your way into the biggest, thorniest bush you can find, and that's where you <laughs> sleep. So we had a Gore-Tex baby bag, right, which kept us dry, but no heat whatsoever. Uh, I reckon we walked somewhere between three and 400 kilometers in those 10 days wow. on, on, on pretty much zero food and no sleep for the first five days was the static phase. They were teaching us survival skills, but also thrashing the life out of us. Right. And, and, you know, massively sleep deprived. And, and then the second five days was escape and evasion where we were hunted by a hunter force. Uh, and the idea was that we had to, you know, not, we had to evade capture and they had helicopters, they had dog teams, you know, we could only move at night. Uh, and, and then at the end of it, um, we got introduced to what they call the shock of capture, uh, which is getting a bit of a kicking and, and bagged and tagged Hessian sack over the head, hands tied behind the back, then taken away. And, and, you know, when we thought it was all over, then we were taken away and we were interrogated for around 12 hours and, we were in stress positions the whole time. We weren't being interrogated. We had white noise played continuously. You know that white noise when the yeah. radio's off station? Yeah, for sure. But it was at the volume you'd hear music in a nightclub, right? So Ooh. it's horrendous. And even to this day, I hate fans. Yeah. <laughs> when the kitchen fan <laughs> yeah. or something's on, I'm yeah. just a little bit on edge. And then somebody <laughs> turns it off. I'm like, oh, God, that's amazing. Yeah. But and, and so, and, and we got interrogated. Now, you, you get it. You get a debrief, right? And yeah. and they um, and the interrogators debrief you, and and the whole idea is to prepare you for that eventuality, right? Yeah. And and it came about from the first Gulf War when there were um, a couple of RAF um, um, British Air Force pilots who were shot down, captured by the Iraqis, and tortured, and they ended up they sued the Ministry of Defence. And because they had not prepared them for that likely eventuality, right? And and so that's why it came about all frontline air crew and special forces who are the guys, think about frontline air crew and special forces, they're the guys who operate behind enemy lines, who, who, if they get captured, will likely be tortured. So that's what it was. And and, and it was about um, probably two weeks later after that event that something happened to me that I'd normally find quite stressful. And it was just water off a duck's back. And then again, another thing happened within about a week. And I thought, this is really interesting. Now, 
And before I joined the military, I'd done a, I had done my master's in exercise physiology. So I understood exercise um, really at, at, at that cellular level. And it's basically just, it's the stress of exercise that creates adaptation, right? That's how you get bigger, faster, stronger. Um, and then I thought, geez, it seems that, 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 that a mental and emotional might be the same thing. And I started asking all the people who I've been on course with, have you guys noticed any? And they were, everybody said, yeah, stuff that used, that used to bother me doesn't bother me anymore, right? And that's that whole, you know, Frederick Nietzsche, that which does yeah. not kill us makes us stronger. stronger. So yeah. that's really where I, I started to then dig into some of the research around resilience. And, and a lot of the really good research is done in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, I, because as, as you know, you, you can, get guys like me into pretty much anything to them and (laughs) poke and prod them. But I remember reading a research paper by a guy called Dennis Charney, who I've now got a man crush on. And he is a a neuropsychiatrist. He works out in Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And there's a research paper um, where they took, um, uh, it was US military guys, um, through pretty much the same course that I did. And I, I was reading it and I'm like, oh my God, I was getting goosebumps. <laughs> but they took blood in these guys, right, um, during the interrogation. So they stuck a catheter into their arm. And when you're getting roughed up, you know, somebody yeah. can stick a catheter in, you wouldn't even bloody know. <laughs> and then they take blood after every interrogation. And it, they find that, that the, the soldiers who'd done the best, whether they were normal soldiers or special forces soldiers, um, all produced higher levels of neuropeptide Y, right? Okay. Which is a neuropeptide produced in the brain, but it, it's, it's one of our anti-anxiety hormones, if you like. Okay. So we can see there's a biological basis, but there's a whole heap of other stuff. So that's what really piqued my, my interest in this area. And now, I, um, um, just the, the way events have unfolded, um, 20 years later, 20 odd years later, uh, I've completed the loop and I'm now doing my research, my PhD, and I, I'm going to be using military personnel. Um, wow. In Australia, in a different country. So, so you, cool. yeah, that is awesome. So, you mentioned this neuropeptide Y, and yes. it is is it a, a safe analogy to say that that is almost like the building of the muscle? Like you build up that particular peptide. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the, the how does that work? A bit of debate at the minute as to whether. And people who naturally produce higher levels of neuropeptide Y under stress are more suited to this type of environment. And that's why they, why they do it. It's, it's a little bit like the heart size when it comes to athletes. We Got see it. that the best athletes tend to have really big hearts. Mm. But is that because they were born with big hearts and or then they they're trained. predisposed to it? Or that early training, particularly as a kid, creates that tissue remodeling of the heart and the heart becomes bigger as because of exposure to the training. Yep. So we're not really sure. Now, now Dennis Charney has done a whole heap of stuff, put people in, in brain scanners, looked at, at how the brain reacts to stress in people who've been traumatized and, and done really well or mm-hmm. not done well and seen differences in brain function, but also um, genes. So there are certain genes that are linked to resilience and there are certain genes that are linked to um, being more prone to um, psychopathology when you're being exposed to to trauma or long-term stress. So there's a big eclectic mix. It looks like everything. There's a bit of nature. Yeah. There's a bit of nurture. There's a bit of stuff that can certainly be learned. And yeah. and that's really where my focus is on, not on, on, on the genetics or those sorts of things uh, or... 
uh, you know, one potential is, are they going to produce a nasal peptide Y spray? Um, uh, uh, wow. and neuropeptide Y spray, right? Because they can do oxytocin sprays now and yeah. you go through through the nose and it's gateway straight into the brain. But what I'm really focused on is um, lifestyle intervention, physical and psychological. So I, I talk about um, um, psychobiological resilience or, or psychophysiological resilience and um, the things that are within your control that you can yep. do. So, you know, what, what I love too is, you, you know, you've got the, what you call the seven resilience rituals and, yes. you know, I guess in my mind, it, you know, thinking more from an exercise standpoint, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the different movement patterns, it's the squat, yep. it's the lunge, it's the hip, you know, hip hinge, it's, you know, I'd love for you to go through, you know, what those things are obviously, and then maybe dive into, you know, obviously these are skills. These are skills that you believe can be developed um, yeah. that can help you with your cognitive fitness, which then in turn, you know, helps your resiliency. So um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, I know the first one you have is, is adapting activities. Would you mind diving into that? Yeah. So uh, adapting activities, they, these for, for me, they're pretty fundamental. And, and a lot of research, resilience researchers don't talk about this stuff. Um, and, and, and I think, so a lot of them, they're about cognitive reframing and all of that so for me that is necessary but it's not sufficient because we, we for me the adapting activities are activities that that um will enable you to adapt at a cellular level so that one of the key ones is exercise i i, I don't think that that any resilience program is is complete unless it it involves physical exercise because exercise creates all of the biological building blocks of resilience right and um, so if we think about um let's take take exercise training and um, you know you expose yourself to the stress of exercise and then there is a whole heap of the, the uh, hormonal changes you know inflammation pro-inflammatory stuff, anti-inflammatory stuff that basically enables that adaptation. So the muscle becomes bigger, faster, stronger. In the brain, this process is really neuroplasticity and um, the ability of your brain to adapt and, and exercise creates all the conditions necessary for neuroplasticity and um, a whole heap of growth factors such as BDNF um, and, and th that help new neurons to grow and survive and to create new connections. And um, there's also a whole host of, of, of neurotransmitters that are important to maintain our mood when we're under pressure. And um, then your monamine, serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline, they're all produced. We have endocannabinoids and we got endorphins that really will help the brain to maintain its normal function but then also with in conjunction with all these growth factors enable it to be basically adapt with this new that's amazing that's right amazing. Yep. so for me cornerstone right mm -hmm. and the the other adapting activities i'm a massive fan of cold showers right i'm called the cold shower well, guy it. in <laughs> lots of different organizations and that's really just about exposure to stress mm -hmm. and and you know i'm a big fan of the stoic philosophers the ancient greeks and romans and epictetus said we must undergo hard winter training right Marcus Aurelius, um, um, the Roman emperor, is called the last of the great Roman emperor, emperors. Um, he was a, a, a stoic philosopher as well. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, yep. you'll see Marcus Aurelius at the start. Um, he, in, in his book, and I actually have a copy of it sitting right behind <laughs> us, um, he has, a, a, in a passage, he talks about 
um, that he should be undergoing regular cold water bathing and regular vigorous physical activity because he said they both develop character and it is this character that you will need to face challenges in your life. So 2,000 years ago, we have a Roman emperor talking about resilience oh. training through physical yeah. exercise and cold water exposure, right? Yeah. And, and I can, maybe later we can come back and dive into it. But for me, this is about that cold exposure and the physical exercise. This is about what we call um, cross adaptation. That, and, and, and actually the military just noted this, you know, British military, British Navy has been training soldiers for a thousand years. And they have noted over time that the fittest soldiers are able to handle the greatest amount of psychological and emotional stress, right? And that's, what we call a cross transfer effect. And, and there's actually been very little um, research in the literature. There, there's some, because I was dig digging into the literature and thinking, it's going to be heaps of this stuff. <laughs> and there's very, very little. I found wow. one paper showing exposure to hypoxic. So me and you would be um, cycling, uh, and then one of us uh, would be then doing a time trial on cycling. Then we do it in a hypoxic chamber. So mm -hmm. you'd be put in a room with less oxygen in there, and you'd see stress hormones would go through the roof, right? Because you, uh, it's stressful with less oxygen. And then what they do is they take you and expose you to cold water dunking three, three wow. times over a day for, for like 10 minutes. And I would be dunked as well, but in warm water, right? And then we repeat it. And then what happens is my stress hormones stay high in the hypoxic environment, yours are reduced right because of the that that adaptive yeah. effect of the cold then not only enable you to handle more cold stress but then cross transferring over to hypoxic stress right oh that's so for, interesting for me this this is that engaging in vigorous physical activity you know the type of hit training where you're uncomfortable um is it increases what's called our discomfort tolerance i mean you look at elite athletes and, and, and elite people, the ability to tolerate discomfort is the one thing that separates it out. So for me, it's discomfort tolerance training with the intense exercise, the cold showers, and the last adapting activity is sleep because that's when all the magic happens, yep. right? That's when all of the growth and repair happens, as I'm sure you know, you know, all the growth yep. hormones released, the, the, the brain repairs itself, you know, you know the, the brain gets rid of toxins at night, um, and, you know, the cardiovascular system repairs itself, there's DNA repair enzymes, so, so sleep is pretty critical. So, so they're the three sub-elements of, of adapting activities. Got it. Yeah, and, you know, just to add, I, I've been doing the cold water plunge when I, you know, I'm in Arizona, so <laughs> in the winter, the pool we got, it, it heats up quite a bit, but now it's getting back down to that 50 degree, 55 degrees. Yeah. And it, I'm telling you, it wakes me up in the morning. It certainly I, does. I love it. And then I'll do my meditation after that and then kickstart the day uh, going from there. And I, I absolutely love it. I miss it in the winter. I'm trying to find a, a refrigerator to put somewhere. <laughs> to so there, there's, there's, there's a friend of mine, you yeah. might have come across a guy called Christian Mason um, who yeah. um, um, is, is in Virgin Active. And, yeah. and he was at Meeting of Minds where we met many years ago. So Christian's in Singapore now. And so he bought a, an, an old fridge freezer chest and, and oh, you've beautiful. got to do a little bit of um, um, waterproofing on the inside, but then you just fill it with water and you stick it on and, and put it on a timer so as it doesn't completely freeze, but it gets Perfect. pretty damn cold. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, that's, I love that. Um, so moving on to the next one, you have fueling your ecosystem. Yeah. So so this is the, 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 um, the gut-brain axis or what has really been – 
expanded now to say the gut-brain microbiota axis. So we know that that it, the all of your your gut bugs, your what's called your microbiota, are really really important for brain function. And and that that you know there's about eighty to ninety percent of your serotonin and neurotransmitter is produced in your gut, not in your brain, right? And 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 when we 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 don't just feed ourselves, we actually feed our gut bugs, and they in turn create these short chain fatty acids. They create um um these neurotransmitters. They create a whole heap of stuff. And we know that for instance, there's this two way interaction. If you're psychologically stressed, if you go through a period of of psychological stress, the gut your gut flora, your gut microbiota actually changes, right? Yeah. But also um, having um, um, certain types of, of, of gut bacteria um, significantly increase your risk of depression, right? Uh, and anxiety and other mood disorders. And, and we now think that Parkinson's disease starts in the gut. And in animal models, you can take a healthy mouse or a healthy rat and transplant the gut bacteria of an anxious or a depressed or an obese or a diabetic mouse, and within a month or, or a couple of weeks generally, that healthy rat or mouse will develop those conditions. Wow. And you can reverse it by transplanting the gut bacteria, right? And we're seeing now this is happening in human studies as well, right? So just with fecal transplants, which is you yeah. get a big syringe <laughs> of someone's poo and it goes up your jacksy and, yeah. you know, <laughs> probably don't need to get yeah. into that. Yeah. but. Uh, other than trying to find a That's healthy food yeah. donor, um, uh, the <laughs> best thing we can do is our diet, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so for me, uh, just to 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 do that that to shorten this down because we could talk for an hour about diet. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the low HI diet, where HI stands for human interference, right? If it's been alive, eat it. Yeah. If you're looking at a food and you're going, Mister Krispy Kreme Donut, yeah. I don't remember seeing you running around <laughs> on four legs. Yep. Then it's in your treat food, right? So yeah. this is about eating stuff that our species has evolved with. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things, there's a quote here that I think is really relevant for both the exercise and nutrition. And, and it's from Frank Booth, a very famous exercise physiologist. And he said that the, the human genome um, ha has not changed in over 45,000 years. And, and, and it's evolved in an environment of high physical activity. And the current human genome requires and expects us to be highly physically active for normal functioning. Well, you can take, and, and you could talk about food in there, it requires and expects us to eat natural food, real food that we have coexisted with for, as a species for 2 million years. And, and our genome, this is key that a lot of people don't, don't understand. We still have a hunter-gatherer's genome. It, there's been no massive changes in the genome in the last 45,000 years. So just eating real foods. And, and, and the, 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 just a couple of things for people. Real food does not have ingredients. Real food is ingredients, right? <laughs> when you're in the supermarket, it's probably the same in the States as it is in Australia. Yeah. Walk around the outside Sorry. and shop yeah. around the outside, all the craps in the middle, right? Yeah. So this is just about eating. And, and particularly what we know supports a healthy microbiome which supports a healthy brain is 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 fiber or as we now say microbiota accessible carbohydrates so resistant starch so lots of veggies fermented foods are really really great mm -hmm. things like kombucha um, um sauerkraut kimchi and um, those sorts of things kefir 
Um, it's not, you know, you get it everywhere in yeah. Australia now. I'm sure you're getting it where yep. you guys are. All of that stuff, the vinegar, but having lots of fiber, a diet of really high fiber um, is really important for, for our gut bugs. And there's also um, some, some fat, right? So that's where we get into butter. Um, actually has butyrate in it. Butyrate is really, really key. So having butter rather than margarine, mm-hmm. those yep. sorts of things, right? Um, eating just natural foods. And will support that healthy microbiota, which supports a healthy brain. Love that. And obviously we can go super in depth in, in, in that. And maybe in the future we can do that. But moving on, you know, connecting to others is, is your next one. And yeah. go into that and how this all fits together. So look, the, the way I, I like to tell stories when I'm, because um, that's how the brain learns. And, yeah. and I talk about um, um, a, a prisoner of war camp in the Vietnam War called the Hanoi Hilton. Right, uh, and and there are a number of people in the Hanoi Hilton. You're from Arizona, right? Yeah, so yep. um, Senator John McCain um, spent years in the Hanoi Hilton prison camp, and John McCain went on record saying, "If Jim Stockdale had not been in the Hanoi Hilton, I would not have survived, and many of my friends would not have survived. We owe our lives to Jim Stockdale." So Jim Stockdale was a a fighter pilot, and he was a, quite a senior officer. He got shot down early, and ended up in the Hanoi Hilton prison camp. But as he um, ejected out of his plane and, and as he was coming down in his parachute, he could see the Viet Cong running in to capture him. And, and he said to himself, I'm now leaving my world, the world of technology, and I'm entering into the world of Epictetus. So Epictetus was a Stoic philosopher who he had been educated around Epictetus. He, he, the, the, the Navy had sent him to a university to do a master's and he had some extra time and he took a short course in philosophy. And the head of the department thought, you're a military guy, you're going to love the Stoic philosophers. And, and every week they'd meet and talk about Stoic philosophy. And when Stockdale left, um, the, the guy gave him a copy of um, Epictetus's Enchiridion. Um, it's a, a manual, basically a guide for life. And he oh. took it to war with him. But he used all of the principles of the Stoic philosophers. So he gave the guys all a mission return with honor that was their mission and and a set of principles or core values of the stoics talk about virtues um or character strengths and 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 that was um it, it was about um together to unite it you know it was about um he said nobody will survive this alone we we need to be completely united so it was about unity the power of we and um it was about um, brutal honesty first with yourself and then with each other and it was also a, 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 about um, second chances. Everybody deserves second chances, right? And there was to be no splinter groups. And then they got word that they were going to be um, put into solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And they created this thing called the tap code, which was a way that they could tap on the walls and communicate with each other, right? And Stockdale said to every one of them, he said, get on the wall, learn the tap code and share information help each other, support each other, remind each other of the mission and each prisoner of war's role in that mission. He said, when your brother is taken out of his cell to be tortured, when he comes back, you tap, get on the wall, you tap to him, you tell him that you love him. When he, he says that he's betrayed us because he's give, told the enemy secrets, you tell him you've done the same, right? Now, Dennis Charney, that guy I talked to earlier, he interviewed every single one of those combat veterans. Wow. And he said that lifelong friendships were struck up in that prison camp between people who never met each other because they tapped on the walls and they kept each other going through their darkest times. So this is about the power of human connection. Yeah, they just community, and, right? 
Yeah, to yeah, uh, all yeah. about communities, right? Yeah. And this is why any community works, whether it's a religious or a spiritual community or just, your, you know, your riding club or, or your bunch of guys that come and train together. That sense of community, but getting on the wall. So that's a metaphor for having wow. those conversations, right? Because every time me and you say I'm struggling and we have a conversation uh, around my, my struggles, we get on the wall and oxytocin and vasopressin are released in both of our brains, right? Now, mm -hmm. oxytocin is the hormone of love and trust and vasopressin is the hormone of social bonding. I'm simplifying, but essentially that's yeah. what they are. But they are both very potent anti-stress hormones, right? So when you have those conversations, powerful anti-stress hormones are released in both people's brains. This is the beauty of that. On both sides of the wall, um, they're benefiting. Um, which is is why and and Dennis Charney said, what's clear to him is that every human being needs a tap coat. Everyone needs a tap coat. And, and the com I, oh go ahead go ahead. And the conversations you're talking about is is to tell them that they love them and that, that they're supported and yeah. those and or when you're struggling right yeah, when, when you're, you're struggling because yeah. a lot of people who struggle with mental health and you know this whole COVID thing has made it much much worse for sure and and a, a lot of people um feel self-conscious and say, I don't want to be a burden, right? So I, I, I've run some stuff with my soccer team. I play soccer. I'm pretending I'm not 50, but I'm 49. <laughs> exactly. but, um, so, uh, but, uh, and I, and, and some of the guys, you know, we, we raise money for mental health and I did a talk to them. And, and, and within a couple of weeks, there was a couple of guys in the team that came to me and said, mate, and they both started the conversation by saying, I don't want to be a burden, but I'm struggling. And I said, didn't you listen to my conversation? <laughs> You're not being a burden. You're just giving me an opportunity to improve my mental health. This is the, the key thing is for, for those listeners who are struggling, realizing that there's no shame in this, that, 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 that so many people are suffering. Like Lifetime prevalence of mental health issues in, in America and Australia is around 50%. So about one in two of the population will have a mental health issue at some stage. And but I bet you when you... Oh yeah, it's gone even higher now. Yeah, gone up, and and mostly it's gone up for younger people, right? And they they have struggled the most. So understanding that that there's no shame in getting on the wall. In fact, it is it is a quintessential part of being human to get on the wall. And if you're struggling, you just need to reframe this about being a burden to. I'm giving someone an opportunity. And the thing that I say to other people: if you've got your own stuff sorted, just look around. Look, look, look out rather than look in in these times and think who in my community um, might be struggling, who could use just one of those conversations. And um, that's the that's key powerful man. around that. Yeah. Just, just let, let's just reinvent the tap code or reignite the tap code. Yep. And then um, this is just fantastic stuff. And, and in, you know, obviously the courses that you have that you take people through, there's, a, there's very specific exercises that go through and we've only done right. half of them, you know, on how yes. to develop these skills, which is fantastic. So uh, next one you got is, is sculpting your brain. Yeah. So, so for this one, it's like, basically think of your brain like a bonsai, you know, those little bonsai trees. Yeah. I've had many and I've killed every single one of them. Right. <laughs> so, sure so that, that's well. blowing, that's blowing back up to a wider culture now because of the Cobra Kai uh, Netflix uh, series that just re reimagined the uh, karate kids. <laughs> so people, All right. Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, but if you think of the, the bonsai, you put it in a small pot so you control its growth and then you clip the branches on it. You hang weights off certain branches. You tie them together and you actually sculpt it. So you shape it. 
So the, the, the key thing for everybody to understand is that our brains are just like that, right? Uh, is that, and, and it, look, it's best summed up by, um, there's a guy who's professor of theoretical physics at Oregon University, Amit Gotswami, and he's a philosopher as well, very sharp cookie. And he said something I've never forgot. He said, we do not view reality directly. We view reality through the mirror of memory. So what he means by that is that every experience that you've had shapes your brain. Your, your brain is unique. My brain is unique. And, and let's talk about mind slash brain, right? So let's incorporate the two to three pound mass of jelly and consciousness that arises from it. Every experience that you have had shapes your brain, particularly strong emotional experiences, yep. and especially ones that when we are younger, right? So that they have disproportionate impacts on the shaping of our brain. And it is the brain that you filter reality through, right? Um, we comp- So the way I like to say it is that there's, there's 7.2 billion unique filters out there and everybody is viewing reality subtly. Now, if you're based on up, what they're watching on TV and what channel they're watching. Yeah, yeah well, that, well see, <laughs> now it's largely being affected by that, right? Yeah. But but it, it has become a greater part of our culture and the whole yeah. social media. And it is, sure. and, it, and yeah. particularly, it's affecting younger people, right? Mm-hmm. So so it's understanding that, but also understanding that the, your bonsai can be reshaped at any time, right? So no matter if you've been brought up in a terrible upbringing as a kid, um, you're not lost, right? Or if you if you think, oh God, I wasn't around when my kids were brought up, yeah. everybody can change the brain, right? And neuroplasticity, you've got to nourish the body with healthy food, with exercise, and then it's about doing these sorts of exercise. So, so for the sculpting, we'll just we'll we'll bring one of the the exercises yeah. that people can do. So I want everybody to think of the the kind of characters or voices in their head, right? So, and some people have got a lot of voices in their head, <laughs> particularly if you've had Bobby Capuccio on. He's probably I got did <laughs> at least last week. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Bobby, he's probably got millions. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, think of the two extremes, right? Yeah. So the, you know, the negative and the positive, right? You at your best. And then everybody who's listening to this can think of a version of them that's a little bit crap, right? Just that crappy version of you that just doesn't want to do stuff, blames. I call this your inner gremlin, right? Okay. And, and the inner gremlin is basically... It, it, the the gap or, or the deficit between when you're normal you and your inner gremlins in control it's things such as negative self-talk right mm-hmm. overthinking any overthinkers know you can get dragged into that vortex it's just worry anxiety but it can also be self-criticism and a victim mentality right so the key thing to understand your inner gremlin is like a chameleon um, it, it has many guises. It can be the one that 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 is just worrying, that's negative, blah, 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 that plays the victim. Why is this COVID happened? Why are they locking us down? Why is this happening to me and my business? Or it, it can also be the one that goes, you're not good enough. You're fat. You're ugly. You're not a good friend. You're not a good father, daughter, what, husband, whatever. Um, this is where um, there are three modalities that that I'm a big fan of that all intersect. Stoic philosophy, which I've talked about. Japanese psychology, um, um, which my, my wife is trained in, and acceptance commitment therapy, which is a form of cognitive behavior therapy that's actually probably the most successful for anxiety and depression and mood disorders. All three of those um, modalities say there's no point in trying to get rid of your inner gremlin, right? So there are other approaches, and lots of people think, I want rid of my anxiety. I want rid of my negative thinking. I want rid of that self-criticism. It's never going to happen. It's a, no, yeah. it's about where you put your attention. 
right? And when you choose to pay attention to your inner gremlin, that's when you energize it and you amplify it. You feed it by paying attention to it, right? So when, to get practical, um, you when you actually know that your inner gremlin's in control, right? That they're, they're there. You just say to yourself, thanks, gremlin. Thanks for that story that you're telling me. Because it's a story, one of many possible stories. And you um, put your inner gremlin in your back pocket and you consult what the Stoics would say, your inner sage. Now, I, um, you can call this your inner sage, your inner ally, your inner warrior. Again, different guises. Sometimes it's the wise voice telling you what to do. Sometimes it's the warrior in you that needs to step up, right? And so I get people to write down their character strengths of when they're at their best, right? So you describe your inner, your inner warrior, your inner sage, and also plus ones. So for instance, I might say, I've known Jason for years. I love the way that he's calm under pressure. I would like to have more of that. I'm going to write down that my inner sage is calm under pressure. So I'm going to create my best self and give it a little sprinkling of steroids, right? And then that is the version of me that I'm going to mentally rehearse, right? So I know you've dealt with elite athletes before. You show me a world-class athlete, I'll show you someone who does mental rehearsal, yep. right? Michael Phelps said two, two hours of mental rehearsal every day coming up to a major competition, right? Because this wires your brain, right? So it's mentally rehearsing. And then it's getting up in the morning. And, and I like to get people to get up in the morning, spend five minutes, just get a quiet space, do some breathing, some deep breathing, box breathing or resonant frequency breathing, something like that. And just set out your intentions. Who, who's going to be in control today? Is it going to be my inner gremlin or my inner sage or inner warrior? And, and when you're faced with challenges, so I actually said to myself, what would Jev do right now? Jev is my inner warrior. So he's made up of, of the initials J-E-V, J for Jim Stockdale, E for Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, and V for Viktor Frankl, who I read his book. He was in uh, a psychiatrist who was imprisoned in Auschwitz, and, and I read his book many years ago. So saying to yourself, what would Jev do right now, or your version of Jev? Or the other question, when you've written down all the character strengths of your inner warrior, you say, what action or behavior do I need to do right now to exhibit those character strengths, right? So this is where acceptance commitment therapy, Japanese psychology and stoic philosophy all align. It's about taking positive action despite how you might be feeling, right? That That's, that's really fantastic. key. And then that mental rehearsal and practice is just key. That way, you're just going to reshape your brain more and more, and it's going to be easier to access your inner warrior or your inner sage Man. and put away your inner gremlin. God, this is some just fantastic stuff you can kind of spend time and time again on. And, and you know, one of the things that, you know, I w- I've heard with regard to this thought-feeling cycle and how, mm-hmm. you know, they both work together. And I think a lot of people always think it's the, the thought that impacts the feeling, but yet the feeling can impact the thought um, and how those two things in a, you know, work together. And then obviously some other stuff that I think you were saying too, is just, we have a negativity bias that's in the yeah. brain, right. And our ability to overcome resistance, some people call it resistance, which is the bullshit that you tell yourself, yeah. you know, to make yourself feel better or the judgment or staying attached can all really negatively impact or positively impact depending upon how you're framing it. So 
Um, yeah, look, at, and, and, and the key thing to understand for people is that that negativity bias is stronger in some than others, right? <laughs> and, and that it becomes amplified. So we have seen research papers. Uh, I've got a number of papers showing that people who've been exposed to chronic stress, and um, there are significant structural and functional changes in the brain. So the prefrontal cortex shrinks. The amygdala actually grows bigger and more sensitive. So it becomes sensitized to stress. Now, um, there's a, a psychiatrist or psychologist in the UK whose name I forget, um, Richard Wiseman, right? He has done a whole heap of study on luck. So he advertised for in the UK for lucky people and unlucky people. And, and given it that they're mostly English, um, there's more unlucky <laughs> people forward than lucky people, right? Yeah. All my English friends will be yeah. hearing me. But, um, he then did a whole series of elaborate experiments and showed that lucky people are not lucky. They have a positivity bias in the brain and they look for opportunities and they take them. They actually take risks. Whereas unlucky people actually are no unluckier. They're no, they have no worse luck than lucky people. They just have a negativity bias. So they either miss it because their brain has been trained to focus, focus. on negative potential in, in the environment. So they miss the opportunity or they see the opportunity and they go, that's never going to work for me. And they don't take the risks. Right. Yeah. And it becomes then a self-fulfilling prophecy and um, either way. So yeah. that negativity bias is something that, that is, is powerful and it plays into this, but it can change. Yeah. That's for sure. And, yeah. and that's the whole, we talked about thoughts and feelings. And um, this is what Japanese psychology is about. And, and to a certain extent, acceptance, commitment therapy, living a life, of action despite your feelings. So many people live a life governed by their feelings. I don't feel like exercising today. Yeah. I feel like staying in bed. I feel like that Krispy Kreme donut or the unhealthy, the pizza rather than the salad. Um, but this is where, where Marita therapy and Japanese psychology is that, that you are living a life of action that is aligned to your purpose. And um, so that, and that's where I get pretty deep in, in yeah. that sort of stuff, right? But, but that, that negativity bias is important but it can't change. That's yep. the thing. And, and I think something else you said there too is so important where I think a lot of people struggle, you know, bringing it back to the exercise or, or just health in general, well-being in general is, is having a very clear, vivid picture of the future of what you're looking to go and do as that main motivator um, yeah. versus not having anything or, you know, the other way, uh, having more of a negative, you know, I can never change and, and running those thoughts over and over again. That's right. And, and, and that leads us probably to our next of the, the resilience riches, which yeah. is strengthening your core, right? And, yeah. and for this, I'm not talking about doing planks, right? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually talking about meaning and purpose, right? So, and, and Dennis Char and others' research has shown that, that, that people who are um, deeply religious are more resilient. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not religious. I'm a recovering Catholic, right? But <laughs> um, you don't have to be religious. You can be spiritual or have a strong sense of meaning and purpose in your life. So any one of those things, and they're tied together, right? People who are deeply religious have a strong sense of meaning and purpose. It's all about meaning and purpose, whether you get that through religion, through spirituality, or just through working on and identifying your own meaning and purpose, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I run exercises around that. You know, I'll give you one very quick one and a shortened version yeah. of it, is what would you like to be written on your tombstone? 
um, that would sort of sum up your life and that, that, or, or, you know, you're at your own funeral and people are talking about you and they're, they're talking about the good stuff that you did and, and the purposeful stuff, that eulogy thing yeah. um, is, is really quite useful. Another thing that, that, that people can do is, is sort of, um, um, you're in your 90s, you're on your deathbed and you project forward as if your life is going to play out as, as it has been playing out and you're in your 90s um, and you're given another shot to wind the clock back, what would you do differently? What would you do less of? What would you do more of, right? And yeah. one big thing for people, spend less time on bloody social media and yeah. watching the goddamn news. Because you want to de develop a, a negativity <laughs> bias, you watch yeah. the news, right? Yeah. Because negativity sells. And particularly in your country, I've noticed how polarized it is, yeah. right? It's the worst and, it's ever been. Yeah. It's the worst it's ever been. And it's that negativity. So don't watch the bloody news. Get off social media and actually start living. As I say to my kids, um, um, don't live other people's life. Live your own life, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so it's really about, and for lots of people, if they're younger, that your, your meaning and purpose, um, um, it's, a, it's an evolving thing, right? So just get something where how you feel that you could impact your little area of the universe positively, right? That could be as a mom or a dad, just being the best parent I can be. And for some people, um, I find it can be quite helpful to split purpose, meaning and purpose up into three, three tranches, work, energy, which is health and well-being, and connection, social connection, and, and actually work on just create a small purpose on those three things. And, and it can be even on a daily basis. So when you're looking at the food and you're going, there's pizza or there's healthy thing. I want the pizza. I feel like the pizza, but my purpose is to nourish my body so that I can have a healthy brain or mood or whatever. So I'm going to choose to have the salad despite the fact that I feel like the pizza, right? Yep. So it's not trying to undo your feelings. It's living a purposeful life in spite of how you might feel. And then give yourself the reward. So I don't think what you're saying here is right. not, you, you, it's, I forgot exactly the word that you used a little while ago of it's the treat, you know, and it's, yeah. hey, put, put five, seven, eight days, a couple of weeks in a row, maybe it's just six days in a row together and then do your cheat meal, not your cheat day yeah. <laughs> uh, and throw it in there. But one thing we So I use the 80-20 rule, Jason. So, so, so yeah. for me, that's what we live by, the 80-20 rule. So 80% yep. of yep. stuff that does good. And, yep. I, you know, I'm Irish, I'm ex-military, I like a tipple, right? Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of my 20% is alcohol, but mm -hmm. I will trade off crappy foods that, that I like yep. so that I can have the alcohol, yep. right? That, that, mm -hmm. That's the thing. And I say for, for, for people, if it's chocolate for you, have your chocolate. Just buy the best damn chocolate you can buy and have yeah. less of it. But go for quality, right? Really yeah. enjoy and savor your treats. Yeah. And enjoy and savor your little victories. This is another important part is that when you do something, when you actually overcome your feeling and you take a positive action, the research says um, you need to savor that victory. And BJ Fogg talks about, you know, a little win. Mm -hmm. 12 seconds, the research is saying you need to reflect on that positive feeling emotion for 12 seconds to encode it in the brain, right? So actually reflecting on, yes, I just did well. That is bloody awesome. You know, and just think about it. 12 seconds, boom. That's great. Well, one thing we did jump past, and but I think you talked about it, is cultivating optimism. Yeah. Um, and I think we, we talked, is there anything that, we, we didn't hit on that you might want yeah, to add Yeah, there. there's a couple of things we didn't hit on. So there are a couple of techniques that you can do to cultivate that optimism and a positivity bias in the brain, right? And, and one is gratitude. 
and 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 I bumped into this 27, 28 years ago when I was backpacking in India for three months. I spent a, I took a year off university in uh, 28 years ago, <laughs> and and I went backpacking um, around the world. And I spent three months in India, and India in 1992 was bonkers it was awesome <laughs> it was bonkers yeah and one day i was going down the street and it was this guy begging and he had leprosy and he had elephantitis right his foot <sighs> was the size of an elephant and he was covered in leprosy and i knew it was leprosy because i'd visited a leper colony two weeks previously so 28 years <sighs> ago they still had leprosy in india right and and it was just it was so confronting and i gave him some money and he was in this rickety homemade go-kart and off he went and, and as he went away, I, so I went to walk away and then something in my head just clicked and said, don't walk away. Just stand here and watch this guy. Never, ever forget this guy, ever. And the next time you're feeling sorry for yourself, yeah. just remember this guy. Because what has he ever done to deserve leprosy and elephantitis when you are perfectly healthy? So be yeah. grateful. Now, ever since then, I've done a gratitude ritual every day. And, and, and McCulloch did a meta-analysis in 2002 and found that people who regularly practice gratitude have more positive emotions, higher well-being, more hope and optimism for the future. They're less depressed. They're less, uh, they're less anxious. And that they um, actually are more forgiving of people who wrong them, that they're, they're more empathetic as well. And, and, and all of this just comes from focusing on what you're grateful for. And, and, and particularly when COVID hit and my business got wiped out, yeah. uh, you know, we're going, oh, shit, this is really not good. Um, yeah. But then we thought, well, you know what? We don't have leprosy and elephantitis. Our kids don't have bone cancer. Yeah. Let's, just, let's just focus on that and still focus on the stuff that we can control, right? Yeah. So, opt, uh, so, so I think that that regular gratitude ritual and sitting down at dinner with your kids, if you've got kids or your partner, doing that. And another one that comes from Japanese psychology, which I really like, is, is, a, is a Nikon reflection, where it's three questions you ask yourself. And you can do it with one other person. You can do it at dinner. Um, um, so, so what have I received today? So that's like, like gratitude, but what mm -hmm. have I received from someone else? What have I given, right? Um, and it makes you reflect on your own behavior. And then what troubles and difficulties have I caused, right? And this is where my kids will actually apologize to each other, right? Um, which doesn't happen much. Oh, no, that's a big one. That, <laughs> when they're doing that Nikon reflection, Oscar's going, well, I caused Kira troubles and difficulties earlier on um, when I had this argument with her, right? So I actually like Nikon. It takes it to another level in that it incorporates gratitude, but also what have I done today? Yeah. And what troubles and difficulties have I caused for others? And and I think that that's a really good, useful tool that people can do on a yeah. daily basis. And and I think that leads into your last one, which is actioning for life and you know, diving into that one. Yeah, well, this is where the rubber hits the road, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 this is where I, I have to burst the bubble for a lot of people. And um, the motivation fairy does not exist. Right? <laughs> yep. It's like Santa Claus, that shit yeah. ain't me. There is no motivation fairy <laughs> that's going to come along and give you a massive dollop of motivation so yep. you can go and change your life. And yep. so many people wait to take action. They're waiting for the motivation <laughs> to get yep. done. And what I realized a number of years ago when I um, decided to become a, a professional boxer at the age of 41, and I had this mirror <laughs> that I was writing all of my rituals on that I was going to do, and I was ticking them off. I had a target. And, and I realized that uh, after a while, every time I'm ticking stuff off, 
it's actually giving me more motivation. And that's when I had my epiphany standing at my bathroom mirror. I went, shit, we got it all wrong. We think that, that, that actually we, we action follows motivation, but motivation follows action. And then I'm like, you muppet, you're a neuroscientist. You know, natural <laughs> rewards in the brain, food, water, sex, nurturing, and achievement. You do any of those things, your brain will release a little bit of dopamine and dopamine says that shit felt good. Yeah. Do it again, right? So dopamine is actually the chemical of motivation. So and um, having little targets and ticking them off. And, and this is where I use the concept of now a ritual board where it's like my mirror, where you write down the things you're going to do. And, and the key thing, taking some of BJ Fogg from Stanford University, his stuff about have lots of little behaviors, right? So a gratitude ritual, where you walk past your board, you put it on your kitchen somewhere, you're going to see it. Gratitude, I can do that right now. Boom. Yeah. And I can tick it off, right? And, and have stuff like go to the gym, but also have stuff like, I'm going to do 500 push-ups in the next week or the next month, whatever it is, and you have it. And then you'll just, you see your board and that's the trigger and you pop out 10 or 20 And that gains the momentum. And you take it up, yeah, and that gains the momentum because the thing that the, one of the biggest drivers of long-term behavior change is self-efficacy, the belief that what I'm doing is making a difference and it's working. And when you are actually taking it off and achieving stuff, that builds your self-efficacy, right? So yeah. this is where, for, for me, is, is about, and, and I am, um, do and, and and I can give you some stuff that you can give to, to your listeners um where there's um a decisional balance sheet and then a ritual board um where they're actually um the decisional balance sheet really helps you get clear on on, on on what you want on your on your goals and then I'm a big fan of, of break it down into small components and when I'm coaching people I don't allow them to focus on a goal that's longer than a month right so many people have these big goals we what we know from the research people who need I have these big goals. Some people that works really well for, right? They're very goal-driven. Other people, and they, they're the ones who need another goal and another goal and another goal, right? And other people, and particularly when it comes to weight loss, people who need 10, 20 kilos, 20, 40 pounds of weight loss, that big goal can be an impediment to starting and it can destroy motivation because every day it's a reminder that you're so far from your goal. So if somebody wanted to lose 40 pounds, I'd say, right, that's cool. Write that shit down, forget about it. What are you <laughs> going to do in the next month, right? That's the one we focus on. Now, let's have waypoints because I'm ex-military. You need waypoints along the way to check in. So that's the next month. What are we going to do in the next week? What is the target this week? Right. Okay. Now, write down all the rituals, the behaviors that you need to do in the next week to achieve that, right? And and actually lowball it because you can always overachieve, but go mm -hmm. lowball, Right. And, and then at the end of the week, I get people to reflect. And if, you had a, if you've had a crap week, you know, score yourself. If it's been a three out of 10, that's okay. That was a bad week. What do you need to do different next week? So, so many people who start, they're doing really well. They have a bad weekend it and then it all goes out, right? Mm -hmm. So that's just an opportunity. Psychologically, those weeks, months, seasons, years, they are good for psychological resets. And if you've had a great week, awesome. How do I replicate that that great week, right? Or or nudge it one tiny little. And give bit. yourself the credit too, like you were saying before, the twelve seconds or whatnot. And that's where I think Absolutely. we don't we don't give ourselves the credit for the things because again, the negativity bias goes towards you know what we haven't done. And and this is where Jason ha having having a partner 
along the way where you reflect in every every week with them, whether mm-hmm. it's a, a trainer or whether it's a friend that, that you're going on your journey and you sit down every week and you reflect with each other, right? I score myself five last week and your friend goes, okay, so what do you need to do differently, right? Yep. Yeah, that's crap, but this week is a new week, right? Um, yeah. I got an eight, awesome. So how are you going to replicate that? Yeah. Having somebody along the way is pretty key. And and the other thing to understand, so if somebody wants to go on, on, a, on a bit of a behavior change journey and they have a partner who's not going to come with them, understanding that that partner can become very often a saboteur, right? So you see this often with smokers or with people who drink um, alcohol and one partner wants to give up the other one's like on a Monday hey let's have a drink you want to drink yeah. let's hey have a smoke have a smoke because yeah. what they're doing and often it's not conscious sabotage often it's subconscious because them seeing you doing what they want to do but don't have the willpower to do reflects poorly on their behavior so the easiest way to justify their behavior to themselves is to drag so, you down to their level and often people do not realize they're doing it so actually, I get people to say, Who, "Who's your? If you have a partner, right? Are they going to be on the journey with you? If not, you need to have the conversation up front. This is That's the journey great. I'm going to go on. Can can we be please respect that journey? Right? Yeah. Well, man, I can't thank you enough. I mean, there were so many tangible things. You know, so so often when we talk about mental health or resilience in the, in the different areas, it's it's a lot of talk, but there's no specific action steps. And I think, you know, you've really provided the audience with some amazing stuff. And, you know, I also know, you know, if, if people are interested in finding out more, obviously you've got the mind body brain performance Institute. You also have a fantastic podcast yourself that is just blowing it up. And that's uh, I believe, is it on Spotify or are you on, it's iTunes? on Spotify? It's on everything. It's on Spotify. It's on, it's on Apple and um, podcasts. It's on Google podcasts. Awesome. It's on- and that's called the mind body brain uh, project. Uh, project. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, mind well, body brain project. Well, I can't thank you enough and hopefully we could run this back again. And, you know, when you're in the States, we can, we can connect and, and, and have a cocktail or so, but, uh, yeah, I look you. forward to those yeah, days. Absolutely. It was fantastic. <laughs> so thank you so much, Paul. Anything else that you have that you want to share? Uh, no, look, that's pretty much for health professionals. I'm actually going to be running um, reasonably soon. I'm going to be running a, a certification um, to become a, a, a resilience coach. Um, and I'm actually going to be doing something for uh, for end users. Um, so I've got awesome. an app that I'm, I'm soon going to be opening out for, mm. for those guys. But uh, no, that, that's pretty much it. The, the podcast is really the one um, or Instagram, mind, at mindbodybrainpi on Instagram and LinkedIn. I think I'm Paul Taylor underscore 197. So yeah, reach out. I might take a little bit of time to get back to you, but I will do. Well, I appreciate it again. And thank you so much for taking your time and uh, wish you the best, man. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thanks to all your listeners for, for, for listening. And hopefully you could decode the accent. (laughs) You're all good. Thanks again, man. Have a great day. Cheers. 